Warning, this podcast contains scenes of explicit nonsense and lore. Previously on the Resident Evil podcast. That definitely feels like a Roger Moore era James Bond title. Capcom that finally showed they could make a Resident Evil title that had no real connection to the to the classic games. Well, who's he selling it to? Who's buying all this shit? <laughs> who, who wants a liquor? Who wants a hunter? I think if we'd known in 2003 that virus was in Africa, it would have been all over this. If I want to put it in an ideal world, the gun is perfect for the shooting part, the controller is perfect for the exploration part, but neither does the other thing correctly 100%. This is peak gaming. Hello and welcome to episode 89 of the Resident Evil podcast. More dangerous than Leon on a motorcycle, but rejoicing with Rebecca's return with a big thumbs up. I'm Nick, better known as Neptune, bigger, badder than ever. Let's see who's joining us today. He's brought the team together at long last. It stars Tyrant. Welcome to The Rock. Not quite as contagious as before, but still as acrobatic. It's Rombie. Oh, thank you. Welcome, welcome, welcome. And we are delighted to have with us, returning to our EP, someone with more contacts than the star's phone directory, Alex Anil, a.k.a. CVX Freak. Hello. Hello. Uh, Dino Crisis sucks. <laughs> That's how you know it's me. Yeah, it's your calling card. <laughs> yes. Coming up on today's podcast, we are going to be looking at the latest CGI Resident Evil Death Island. We've all seen it. If you haven't seen it yet, come back at a future time and listen to our thoughts. We'll also be catching up on some of the news before ending with another edition of Neptune's Biohazard Quiz. So let's start with the news. So the first bit of news is, of course, Death Island and the fact that it is out, but kind of not in the UK and other parts of Europe, which has been a cataclysmic failure, I think, by Sony in the way this has had this weird staggered release across the world. I thought it'd be quite useful just to have a quick chat about that at this point rather than the main Death Island discussion, but I think there has been some updates at the time of recording. I've seen some tweets suggesting 21st of August in the UK, but then in Germany I think we've had October time as well for DVD. It's all a bit weird and... It hasn't been the easiest thing to endure as a fan. But Sean, have you been, you've been following? Yeah, I mean, they're not doing a good job to prevent people from actually looking at alternate methods to watch it, are they? Let's be honest. And that's it's really the tragedy of it all, is that this is going to directly affect sales, certainly for the, the home media. But yeah, it's, it's disappointing and it's very poor because it's, it's just one of those situations where, like, you know, you just see the discourse on Twitter. Everyone's prepared to throw money at Sony and Capcom as such. I know they're not really anything to do with the distribution of this, but it's just disappointing. What's happening in New Zealand, Rob, in the week that physical media got cancelled down in Australia? Well, so somewhat, yeah. The um, I haven't seen any notice of a physical media release down here. Obviously, it did get a theatrical release, which was unexpected, and so I managed to go see that in the theatres all by myself. 
yeah, it was a weird experience. And uh, yeah, but I haven't seen anything. I'm actually just going to see if I can see anything with listings. But yeah, as you alluded to, Disney's just decided that they're going to stop doing physical media in Australia, which also means New Zealand, because they'd already pulled out of New Zealand two years ago. So, And we're seeing less and less physical releases. So I wouldn't even be surprised if I don't actually see one at all, to be honest. And what about over in Japan? It must be a much more smoother. Oh, yeah. They're always very transparent about when the movie's coming out in Japan, how you can see it. And it's always been like this for all the CG movies. It feels like the movies have always been made with the Japanese market in mind because they do come out in theaters here a little more widespread than how they've done it in the past outside of Japan. So they usually, like months before the movie comes out, they'll have a list of theaters where you can watch the movie because it's not every theater, like a widespread Hollywood release, for example. But usually a handful of theaters will have it, in at least in Tokyo and other big cities. They usually sell like movie tickets a month in advance that you can buy. You buy the ticket, you get a cool little like, they call it like a retailer incentive. You get like a clear file or a poster for pre-ordering early. And then you can use that movie ticket to redeem at the movie theater when the movie comes out. So yeah, it, it's very, very nice to be living in Japan if, if you're really into this sort of thing. Although unusually for this movie, for Death Island, the movie out of nowhere ended up getting released in other countries outside of Japan three weeks before the Japanese release, which I was completely surprised by. Like apparently a distributor in the Middle East and Southeast Asia had acquired the rights to release the movie early in theaters in places like the UAE, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, Singapore, the Philippines as well, and I think a few other places. When I found that out, I actually booked the flight to the Philippines which is not far from Japan. It's like a four-hour flight just to see the movie. So That's dedication. Yeah, I hope they never do that again. I want <laughs> Japan to be the first place to get, you know, the movie because then, you know, we have bragging rights here about having seen it first. And <laughs> anyway, no complaints from my side otherwise. I have family in the Philippines, so I had no other excuses to go. But yeah, that was pretty wild. Like all these countries that don't typically like get anything first end up getting a movie like this before everybody else pretty nuts and here it came out the same day as the japanese release in the end which was kind of weird like i thought oh if it's going to be an early release because of the same distribution it would be earlier but no it was the same day as japan so it was a very odd choice I think this, the saving grace may be that if you're after the 4k uhd version that is at least region free so as long as you can find a way to import it, then you're not going to miss out. So that's something, that's something. But I, I think in the UK, the, the rumours are that we're only getting the DVD and the Blu-ray, not the 4K, which... Feels like the 90s are back and Europe is getting like the... <laughs> they're getting it last and they're getting the worst possible iteration of it uh... you know, months after everyone else got it. What's next? 50 hertz only? <laughs> Well, you, you you say that, but the director's cut on the PlayStation Store over here is still the 50 hertz version, unfortunately. Oh, ew. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Talking of which, the final bit of news is the release of Resident Evil 1 Seamless HD Project, which is very exciting. Uh, we've uh, covered quite extensively uh, over the years the the joy that is the seamless hd project for re2 and re3 and then when the team have kind of gone back and done the, the original it is looking as colorful and as sharp as you could possibly possibly hope now sure you've given it a spin in fact you, you whip through the game 100 miles an hour where there's quite a, an exciting experience just to see how easy the mansion incident can be when you're using an infinite ingram <laughs> yeah. well i mean it's been eagerly awaited this one and 
it's safe to say that the upscaling is not quite as effective here as it is on like particularly Resident Evil 3 with the higher quality assets to begin with. But the, the team have done some extensive work in trying to make it look as good as possible. The previous version of this was by a Russian team called Team X and they just simply ran the backgrounds through an upscaler and there was a lot of AI artifacts and things like that and it wasn't it wasn't the best looking project. So the seamless HD team have actually gone in and sort of manually tweaked, I suppose is the better word. They they haven't changed really anything. They've tried to keep the look of the project in keeping with the original aesthetic. And aside from one or two backgrounds, for the most part, the project is absolutely exceptional. I think the team have excelled themselves with what they were working with and whether it's the definitive version of the game is really down to whether you prefer a more classic pixelated look, but certainly if you're playing on, you know, like a 4K TV where it really does blow up those pixels, if you're playing it on like a 65 inch TV, those those 240p backgrounds or whatever they are don't really hold up anymore. And so this is quite a definitive way to play it, you know, taking into account technologies and whatnot. And it's really easy to play and it has other quality of life fixes. I think it's a wonderful addition and it's been a joy to see people actually going out of their way to play the original classic because I think they are in danger of being lost a little bit now. It's been quite heartwarming to see people really enjoy it. It is my definitive version of the original tale. I prefer it to the remake. I always revisit the original more than I do the remake and I think it speaks a lot for preservation and why it's important. So yeah, excellent. Well done team. I think you were saying in it they use they use some assets from the Saturn version. Yeah, all the backgrounds are sourced from the the Saturn version because they were originally slightly higher quality with less detail crush than the PlayStation ones. No ticks. No ticks yet, but there is talk of uh, Lee Boy. I think his name is. He's uh, looking to do a mod which will restore them. Excellent, excellent. You can watch Sean's stream back on, on his YouTube page with these HD projects. The best compliment I can give it it's how you think the games looked when you were playing them back in the day. And it's kind of like restoring your memory into a nice, shiny, crisp HD picture. Whereas if you do have original hardware and you do, as Sean says, you load up PlayStation 2 or PlayStation 1 onto your 4K TV, it's a little bit, not sure about that. But this is kind of like your memory of the game. And yeah, it's really quite something to behold. And I'm hoping to get hold of it and uh, play it later in the year. But... Alex, what's your experience with these HD projects? Not not just necessarily this one, but... I haven't gotten the chance to try RE1 yet, but I did go through RE2 and RE3 years ago, and I was unbelievably impressed. So I'm very excited to finally try RE1 when I finally have a, a moment to spare. But yeah, I agree with the importance of preservation, and I do think that more than ever... RE1 on the PlayStation Store right now, notwithstanding. There is a very real threat of the first three games just disappearing and becoming highly inaccessible. And I do think it's too bad Capcom, you know, has maintained that stance for this long anyway. So I am excited. Can't wait to see it, especially knowing that they took Saturn assets. I actually did not know that until you guys mentioned it. That'll be really interesting. Yeah, you've already kind of touched on it a bit, Alex, but it's like Capcom hasn't really gone down a, a route of making these very accessible, perhaps compared to, say, something like, you know, a Street Fighter collection or any of these other games that, you know, they've, they've quite heavily been able to put back into rotation. And playing those original games in, in any form has not been really anything since, I guess, Deadly Silence. You know, it's probably the last time really right. barring, you know, these PSN re-releases. Yeah, I recently began a sub stack where I 
been talking about different Resident Evil related topics. And my issue last week, the third volume, was actually about the seamless HD projects and why Capcom hasn't released the first three Resident Evil games in a really long time. And I kind of delve into a bunch of different reasons why it's so challenging. Some of them that I think we've touched upon here somewhat indirectly. One of them being, you know, how the game looks when you play it on a 4K TV. It's not very pleasant, but also like the amount of hard work that you'd have to go through in order to hack together an acceptable looking version of the first three games and and all sorts of uh, different reasons that, in my opinion, haven't, you know, prevented Capcom from taking that step. I mean, incentivizing the idea of the fact that they've remade all three of these games as well and that they're all available on modern platforms is a big push too because it's obviously much easier to, to sell those as an idea than it is to sell people on hey here's this game from 25 years ago right it's it's a shame and for collectors and 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 there's obviously been a lot of news recently about the lack of preservation of titles and the digital realm and what was that news like 87 percent of games prior to 2010 was have been lost or at risk of being lost through lack of platforms so i think resident evil has fared better than some franchises i mean overall yeah it's just yeah in, in the context of capcom as a company it is a little unusual that they haven't done anything with the first three Resident Evil games in a long time. Like, again, I'm, I can understand if it's a completely irrelevant waste of time franchise like Dino Crisis that we're talking about. You can never re-release those again and nobody will notice. But with the, with the, I'm kidding in case nobody actually realizes that. But yeah, with, with these, like they've done Mega Man games, they've re-released like Capcom Arcade Stadium, which you know, covers a Mm. lot of their most obscure arcade hits from the 80s and 90s. They've done a lot of HD collections, you know, like the Devil May Cry ones, and Oni Musha got a, the first one got a re-release in HD, which was, I was kind of surprised at, but it was still cool to be able to go back and play that again. Yeah, it's kind of surprising that at no stage other than these remakes, but I'm, yeah, you you, million reasons why. Kind of a self-promotion here, but even the original Clock Tower is coming back. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I'm very much looking forward to that. Yes, congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, I am involved in the project, in the project manager producer kind of role. Um, I can't talk too much about it, but yeah, it's nice to see, you know, all these old horror games coming back. But it would be nice to see the original Resident Evil 1, and, one 2, and 3 officially, like, make it over to modern platforms, especially on the Switch. Like, I want to play those anywhere that I want in an official mm. capacity. Right, that does finish news. We have a little bit of site news, and we just want to thank our new patron who has joined us, Mako, who has kindly donated to our, our Patreon. If anyone's interested in the benefits, then head over to our website, and you can click on the Patreon link, and that will take you to that dedicated page. That does finish all the general news, but we want to take advantage of Alex being here. Many listeners will know that he is the author of the fantastic Itchy Tasty book, a worldwide bestseller, I'm going to assume. <laughs> really? I'm, I'm going to assume. Everyone I know bought it, so there we go. Well, not not quite drowning in riches, unfortunately. <laughs> Everyone I know has read it, loved it, and I, I suppose it's a good opportunity just to see what have you got coming up next? You've already mentioned your Substack project. Oh, yeah. And you also teased a tweet a couple of months ago just saying complete global saturation. Well, yeah, I was teasing two things. Um, Mm. One of them was actually the Substack. So I've been writing my second book for a few years, but I haven't had as much momentum as when I 
was writing the first book because I think in a lot of ways the first book covers the first 10 years of Resident Evil's history and I feel like the 10 years that came after that were a little less interesting and there's a lot more information out there and a lot of the people who were involved in that second decade of Resident Evil are still at Capcom so it's it's really hard to interview people to the same degree that I did with the first book but as kind of a transitionary sort of offering. I'm writing articles on my new Substack named after the second book, Complete Global Saturation. And in each volume, I just cover different topics with a similar writing style to what you would expect out of a book that I write that cover different topics. Like the first one was about Resident Evil 6. The second volume was about CG movies and you know how, how those are made and how those come to life. Third volume was about the seamless HD and, and why the, tr- the first three RE games haven't been re- released. So it's not exactly the same as the book that's eventually going to come out, but it, it does give me an opportunity to write more than I'm, what I might be able to fit into a book otherwise and cover a lot of interesting topics that might not necessarily fit within the traditional structure of a book. So I've got a lot of cool topics you know, planned out in my head over the next year. I'm, I'm committing to do this for about a year. And right now, I haven't actually announced this, but every issue is paid every full issue, but I'm going to start offering smaller free issues that don't quite go into as much depth as a full issue would, but it's stuff to encourage like subscribers who haven't, you know, paid for one of the issues, readers who haven't paid for a subscription to get content anyway, that would still be interesting to them. And ideally it would encourage them to subscribe and, and read the full thing. But I, I, I've gotten good feedback for everything that I've written mm-hmm. so far. Hope eventually this will culminate in a nice volume two book that people will find very interesting. The first issue is out for free, isn't it, Alex? Like you put the yes. first whole issue out so people can get an idea. It's quite extensive. I was quite impressed with how much you had actually written. I, you know, I wasn't quite expecting as much as you had. And that obviously it does lead itself well if, if most of your main issues are kind of in that realm. It's a decent chunk of information and it's it's quite engaging and very easy to read. So. Yeah, like I had to think very long and hard about whether this was worth asking people to subscribe to. Because obviously, if I start charging for it, like there's, I have something to live up to and I have to meet people's expectations. Otherwise, it won't be worth it for them. So I'm really hoping that that first issue really left a good impression. Um, I mean, not every issue is going to be that extensive, but that's definitely the kind of vibe that I aim for. Like I want people to read my Substack, and it's not just a regular blog or a regular news site. It's people getting a lot of the insights site that they might not normally um, be able to find elsewhere from someone, I guess, with my background, you know, working in the Japanese game industry. And I hope people like it. How can people find it? If you look up my Twitter, it's, I think it's the pinned tweet, cvxfreak.substack.com, I think is the, the default URL for it. Complete global saturation. I think that URL also goes to it. It does. It does redirect to it. Yes. So... I'm surprised no one ever parked that URL <laughs> in, in the past 14 years. Well, there we go. Thank you, Alex. That's really useful. So everyone can check that out in preparation for hopefully a second book, but also ongoing blogs, which will be interesting to the community. So we now turn our attention to why we're all here as we review Resident Evil Death Island. After all she's been through, she's trying to make up for what happened to her. You mean how Wesker brainwashed her and made her come after us? No one's blaming Jill for that. No one. Except Jill. Dr. Taylor? Yes, we need him in custody ASAP. I checked the DNA we got from a bite wound on an orca carcass. It had a strain of T-virus in it. You're kidding. 
I found the connection between the folks that were infected. They all visited Alcatraz recently. Well, Dr. Taylor, it's time we debuted our <laughs> creation. They turn fast and without being bitten. I'm Rebecca. What do you want me to tell them? Someone accessed the DOD server. They managed to steal data on Leon, uh -oh. Jill, Chris, and Claire. You think this might have something to do with the Operon now? Most likely. I'm going to use my virus to clean the slate. Dylan! Suckers, you're nothing more than pawns. That can't be good. Yeah. Final stage now. That there is no justice. Well, it's over now. Time to light you up. Let's do it. All of us. Definitely going on vacation after this. So welcome one and all, it is the fifth CGI full-length movie, if you count Infinite Darkness as kind of one, which I do. We're going to go through it as we normally do with our reviews and kind of like touch base on each of the of the main points. We're going to be looking at the storyline, the characters, BOWs, and then trying to bring together whether this is a good CGI movie and where does everyone feel it ranks in terms of the general progression of the CGI movies because a lot of people think the CGI movies are fine and that's probably about the base level that a lot of people went into these movies at so I've, I'm really intrigued to hear what people think in terms of their own parameters and whether those expectations were met. I certainly have strong views on the, that particular topic but let's start off with some brief impressions and I think we're going to start a bit positive and surprisingly, we're going to Star's Tyrant first. What's your uh, early impressions then, or brief impressions of, of Death Island? Yeah, I really, really quite enjoyed it, it must be said. Yes. I think it's going to be one of those situations where if you really was to scrutinise it, you, you could nitpick its, its, some of its writing and its plotting for days. But I went in with very little expectations, and I think that, that really worked in its favour, because what I got out of it was more of just enjoying like character combinations and interactions that we've not seen either ever or for a very, very long time. It's just a joyous celebration to like finally see Jill and Leon together for the first time, to see Chris and Claire actually, you know, united on screen again since 2001's Code Veronica X release, or, you know, if you want to keep a bit more current, uh, like Dark Side Chronicles. But when I was sat watching it, something just dawned on me, and it was during like the very, very enjoyable Leon and Jill section, where they're very much you know each a match for each other in terms of like you know ability and, and just the character you know the characterization and whatnot but what 
what really hit me was just how utterly preposterous that it's been for the better part of 25 years to get these combinations actually on screen for the first time. So because of that, I got a lot of enjoyment from it. A lot. Very, very overall more positive than, than, than negative for sure. Alex, do you share similar sentiment? Pretty much, yeah. I feel like five CG movies in, like you kind of know what you're going to get with with like the premise and the setup and, you know, for better or worse, the, the quirks that come with all these CG movies. Like at this point, like if I'm entertained and I get something out of it, then that's usually enough for me. But yeah, I, I agree with Star's Tyrant that, oh, just seeing Jill and Leon together for the first time, it's like, I've been waiting over 20 years for this moment. <laughs> and to see them execute on it very well in a lot of little ways was great, honestly. Like, thinking back to Resident Evil 6, when Leon and Chris first meet, I thought that meetup was a little underwhelming in comparison, whereas with this one, they kind of played upon a lot of little personality things that I think fans of the series will know they really did a good job portraying all the different relationships on screen another one that i really enjoyed watching um, was claire and rebecca that's their first time meeting too and i think the only time we had ever gotten anything like that was in one of the st perry novels back in the day so it's really interesting how they played up on a lot of claire and rebecca's similarities uh, in this movie even though it hadn't been really explored in the game series up to this point good to see chris and claire together again Although that, I mean, as a viewer, like, it was great to see them together again, but I didn't get the sense, this, this grand reunion, like, kind of vibe from them, right? Like, it just seemed like business as usual for the Redfield. So I thought it would have been nice to see something a little more, a little bit more in that regard. But hey, they ever finally remade Code Veronica, maybe they'll delve into that a little deeper in that game. Rombi, what about you? You had the pleasure of a private screening. Did that help? Uh, possibly. I think maybe it did. Well, Alex's comment is exactly that. I, I went in hoping I'd be, you know, with, with those expectations, and, but I remember I'd be entertained because I knew what I was going into. And I w walked out going, actually, I was pleasantly surprised how much I enjoyed that just from an entertainment level. You know, I just was like, it was fun. I enjoyed the character interactions. Yeah, there was some silly stuff in there, here and there, and, and so forth. But, I, you know, I enjoyed it more than Vendetta and, and for a quasi-Vendetta sequel. And, uh, you know, like, yeah, it was fun. I can only reiterate what I said in my video review, basically, you know, which was that I, I walked out of there relatively positive. And I can definitely see there'd be things that people would niggle over, and it's not perfect. And some, some bits of, like, animation and a bit of clunky dialogue here and there and, and so forth. But it's it's definitely could be a lot worse considering some of the other CG films have in the directions they've gone. Yeah, I've got a problem. I went in with higher than average expectations, and I think I got burned on this one. I think I said in a previous podcast, I in some ways I was looking forward to this more so than RE4 remake. We had the killer team up. Everyone was on the same page. We had the return of Neptune, great by default, and. I am still <laughs> struggling with what I saw. Mainly Act 3, I think, was one of the worst things they have ever put out. And I am still, as I said, coming to terms with what the hell was going on. And trying to dissect what was the point in a lot of it. Blimey, Nick, you've kept this bottled up. I know, I, I really have. I mean, I, I mean, generally, it's the best-looking CGI film by, but by, by the way, it looks absolutely stunning. It's a visual treat. I'm looking forward to seeing it in HDR because I think it will look even better. But I really struggled with the end of it, and I, I felt at times I was watching a fan fiction. I thought the writing 
really, really poor. <laughs> but it's really, it's really split. It's really split. So, so uh, the, the first bit, if you like, getting up into Alcatraz and some of the bits in it, that was fine. It's just the the end act I found a little bit. There's there's Resident Evil on the nose, and then there's like you know I'm punching you on the nose big time over this one. So the person named Neptune considers the act with the giant shark in it to be one of the worst things that came out of Resident Evil. Yes! <laughs> because it's not a Neptune, it's some monstrosity thing, and you don't even see the shark. It is cr- I love sharks, generally, and I love that. It's why, my name's sake, it's what I love the series where we saw the Aqua Ring for the first time. I was like, okay, I'm, I'm in. This is great. <laughs> and so... To see in the trailers, oh my god, there's a whacking great shark swimming around Alcatraz. And then it's just not in the film at all. Until Dylan decides, that's it, I, I'm going commando and just jumps in and fuses, I think is the term that, that, that Rebecca uses, fuses with the shark and then becomes generic blob number 48. I do touch upon this in volume two of my substack, actually. <laughs> not to be self-promotion based but like due to like the way licensing works and the way these cg films work relative to the games like they they by necessity have to be glorified fan fiction in a lot of ways like you can't have claire killed off in a cg movie of course that's just not how you know capcom wants this license to be handled so i feel like if if someone goes into a movie like, it's okay to expect the movie to be good and well-made like i completely agree with with that expectation if someone goes into the movie any CG movie expecting the plot to be profoundly pushed forward and you gain some unignorable like context from one of these movies, I think, honestly, that's not the right expectation to have. And it's probably, it, oh, I would imagine it correlates with one satisfaction of the movie, if that makes sense. I, no, I, I agree entirely. And I was, I, as I said, I wasn't expecting anything substantial in terms of, oh, you need to watch this before playing Resident Evil 9, for example. Far from it, I was expecting a very self-contained story, albeit some reference to the A-virus and what Maria was up to. I don't think I got any of that particularly. And, and we'll come on to it a bit later. It, it was just why they're there, what the motivations of Dylan were, and it just got to a point in, in the final act where it, it was bordering on Looney Tunes style. <laughs> and here's a rocket launcher. And here's a minigun. Oh, where did you find that? Oh, I found it out the back. This movie was hilarious. It, it was. And Resident Evil is known for its B-movie cheese. But this was... I feel like there was a lot of self-awareness with the fan service of this movie. Yes. If you buy the Japanese movie pamphlet, as they call it, like it's just like a pamphlet of like information. They have two pages dedicated to all the weapons that are featured in the movie. All four rocket launcher variants <laughs> that you that you see in the movie. And it's like, wow, someone clearly knew about the Resident Evil lore. <laughs> I was going to say this, like they set that up very obviously early on when they first come down there and there's a submarine dock and they're like, oh, there's an armory or weapons store here. Like, ha, huh? I wonder where they're going to get their weapons from later on. <laughs> it was just a little, a little bit much for me at the end that I was... I mean, that's the thing that, though, I guess, at the end of the day, like, how much you want to be satisfied by the connections of this to other things. Like, I feel like, on the one hand, this is the most connected any of the CG films have been to the game franchise because they make direct references much more than just Raccoon City as an event, but specifically to, like, events within Resident Evil 5 within Resident Evil 6 directly and obviously even the opening titles you know using sequences and information and visuals from the games themselves the remakes 
in a lot of cases, but still. Yeah, absolutely. And my criticism, if you like, is very exclusively tailored towards the the latter end. And there is a direct correlation or a direct, you know, comparison between the kind of nods in the final act, which I found a little bit, mm, and and the writing there. Whereas at the writing at the beginning with the nods, when, you know, they're talking like, talking about TerraSave and, oh, and what did you do at the Harvardville incident? That felt a lot more natural. You know, they're talking about Pierce and things like that. And it was like, they were nice Easter eggs that I, I think flowed a bit better than perhaps towards the end, in my personal opinion anyway. But mm-hmm. that Harvard Bill reference was so like out there or out of out of the blue. I was like, wow. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But this, the storyline is, is a bit is a bit generic, but that's fine in the sense we've got another villain in Dylan Blake looking for revenge against Umbrella, kind of, but not really. He's obviously annoyed um, as a kind of USS person got sent into Raccoon City, a bit like the second live action movie, really. Yeah. Just for context, I think it helps to know who directed the movie, who wrote the movie, how the movie came out, or how the movie was designed the way it was, because it's basically at the production level, like it combines Infinite Darkness's director with Vendetta's writer. And you can kind of tell if you think about it very closely how the movie is very much a mix of Infinite Darkness and Vendetta's different approaches. The director, Hasumi Eiichiro, before he directed Resident Evil, Infinite Darkness, like his movies are all like exposition, dialogue, and like metaphors and 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 things like that. And you can tell in Infinite Darkness, you know, there wasn't a lot of action in that movie, in, in that series. It was more just like characters talking to each other and and so on. Whereas Vendetta was more action focused. So you kind of see those two different styles come together. So that's why Death Island has a lot of dialogue, like long sequences of dialogue between all the different characters. And then they throw in the action and all I, it, it's like they throw it all in Act 3 mm. to kind of just wrap things up. But yeah, you could easily tell that you were trying to balance the two different approaches. And I, I would imagine that was intentional because Infinite Darkness, I think, got a lot of criticism for being a very different type of CG product than the other movies were. Especially now that they went back to the full movie format, they wanted to, you know, squeeze in the director's, you know, penchant for long dialogue and and metaphors and things like that. But they also kind of wanted to have, like, the the satisfying action sequences. I don't know if anyone else picked up on that, but that was my takeaway from it, stylistically. No, definitely. It felt like a combination of the two elements. I I thought action-wise it kind of made sense because you... Traditionally, in a in a film of that style, I mean, not even CG, but just a film that's got like an action bent, you're going to have more action towards your final act. It's your culmination. So, basically, you had an opening action sequence, which is the Leon motorcycle thing. Then you've got a little bit with Jill with the zombie thing, you know, off the top of the balcony, and then you kind of go quiet for a while, and then you have the attack in the the prison. So, there's your next main action sequence, and then it quietens off a little bit again, and then you have your villain reveal, and then you go into your final act and that's where all your main action ends up particularly being. And I, and you always have these little smatterings of lead up, like the Leon and Jill Licker thing and, and you know, these little things that lead off. But yeah, it makes sense. I, I thought that it was a good balance because I think Vendetta perhaps is a little too action focused and not enough dialogue. But maybe Infinite Darkness, yeah, perhaps maybe too much dialogue and not enough action. So this was a little bit more balanced. It really stuck out to me how inconsistent the power levels are, even just within the CG movies. Even if you ignore the games, which you can or you cannot, you could or you don't have to. But like in the second movie, Damnation, Leon was struggling against the liquors, right? Practically the whole movie. In this one, a dispatch with one shot. 
Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And then you remember in Vendetta, like Leon and Chris had that whole hallway sequence with the zombies and they were effortlessly wasting them. But like in this movie, I mean, they do fine. Like Chris, Jill and Claire do fine against the zombies, but it's not quite to the same extent that they were doing in Vendetta where they were just like... Left, right and center dispatch. Yeah, it's a bit inconsistent. Yeah, and I do think that's probably a result of, you know, having a different director and having a bit more of a, a grounded, quote unquote, direction with this movie. But I think they hit the right balance personally. Yeah, I think the balance is good. I think inherently this is something that all media has, and this isn't just a Resident Evil thing, but even the games have this. You know, enemies do what the plot requires them to do in order to make the situation work. So if it's you need to heighten up the drama, they're going to be more of a threat. They're, they're going to be harder to, to dispose. If they need to look less weaker or it's more comical, then they're going to be easier to dispatch. That's essentially like that scene with Jill and Leon is a little bit more comical. There's a bit of banter between the two of them. They've got these enemies that seem like they're quite a threat and then they kind of dispatch them a lot easier than expected. I mean, even the Jill railgun thing, is, there's obviously allusions to the finger and nick's already groaning at this i can tell you know but th- but there's a there's a comical payoff to that a little bit in some respects and also a setup to like the fact that she can only use it once without recharging it for a long time so it sets up a bit of a d- dramatic tension or events you know and it seems like she potentially might be sacrificing herself you know there's that potential risk of it even though it's not likely to happen but why would there be a plasma rifle on alcatraz <laughs> anyway <laughs> Why not, Nicholas? Why not? Resident Evil, Nicholas. Yes, I know, I know. Let's try and give a brief overview then of the storyline. As I said, it appears we've got USS member Dylan sent into Racking City to help with the removal of Umbrella employees. So they kind of have that role. And then you've got HQ saying anyone infected needs to be killed. And he suffers from the issue of putting down his comrades should they have been turned into zombies by the T-Virus. And that's fine. And it's good to see from the Umbrella's perspective, if you like, albeit from the USS point of view and it's good to see that actually there were more than just hunks team in raccoon city makes sense i do wonder though whether if anyone thought that that was more of a ubcs role rather than a uss role from what little we know of the uss do you think that was do you think you could have been ubcs instead it probably doesn't make a lot of difference in the sense that it's just telling a narrative but realistically if the if the point is letting valued umbrella employees out then you would sense that it makes the most sense that it's the same sort of people that would be targeted for the ones they don't want to let out so yeah that's yeah that makes sense now that our esteemed guests have arrived it's time we debuted our creation and then we don't see how but he eventually gets in contact with glenn arius and takes over his mantle and teams up with Maria, who, let's not forget, is actually an A-virus mutation. She is infected with the A-virus, but that's not really dwelled upon too much because she was killed at the, again, a Looney Tunes-style wedding from the Vendetta movie. So (laughs) you've got that connection. And then Dylan seemingly has developed issues with being a pawn, someone else's game, which is a really interesting concept. BSAA... DSO, TerraSafe, you still think you're fighting evil syndicates like Umbrella, saving the world, etc., etc. We... we protect... the innocent. Hardly. The huge corporations and the corrupt execs that run them. The ones getting big, fat bonuses for maintaining the status quo. 
That's who you work for. Who you really protect. That is actually touched upon, obviously, in Infinite Darkness as well. I think one of the biggest things people take away from Infinite Darkness is Leon's refusal to hand over evidence to Claire at the end. And I think that's the thing that's kind of stuck out. So this kind of pawn, whether you're being an umbrella or for whatever organization you work for, I think that was a really cool idea because obviously we know that the BSAA are funded by the Global Pharmaceutical Consortium, which in turn is funded by rather shady organizations. And then we later see that in. Resident Evil 7, because the next time we should see Chris canonically, in terms of Blue Umbrella providing a lot of the equipment for the BSAA. So that, that's a nice running theme going through it. And, and so his motivations are quite clear, and, and he wants to use Alcatraz as a base to set up aquatic liquors with mosquito drones, which he can then scatter around the world, specifically targeting who he wants to infect when he wants to infect them. That seems to be the basic premise of what he's kind of going for quite an effective mode i like some of the shots where of the kind of mosquito things flying around and no one can see it until it's too late again quite a good idea i think that's fine i just struggle a bit with why dylan wanted to get the big four together and this is where i think you have to suspend your disbelief a little bit and just roll with it <laughs> I get what your complaint is, and that there probably should have been a reason from a narrative standpoint. But realistically, that it, they're looking for the thinnest excuse possible to have them there, and and you end up with a I don't want to say a pontification of materials as to why, but he he pretty much makes it clear when he's there, why they're there, and I I think you just have to take that on face value and and just go, it's because plot, you know, like. <laughs> I agree. For lack of a better term, you know. Like, it's the same reason. You could say, well, he was having these plans to do what he's going to do, yet he's willing to, you know, play Russian roulette all the time. And does that mean his plan would have fallen through if the gun had gone off and shot him in the head? Mm. Well, yeah, it would have. But that was his choice. It makes him seem slightly more unhinged, the fact that he's just like, I'm throwing my cards in the air, and if they land the way I want, then great. And if they don't, well, then still there's an outcome, you know? Yeah, yeah, and I, I don't, I don't, I, I, I like that aspect of um, of Dylan. I thought that made him quite an interesting villain. J I just struggled. With, it is hard to get these people together, and and I think what it does show how difficult it would be, even in a game setting. A lot of people have been asking for an Avengers style game. You know, if RE Nine is going to be the end of another trilogy, perhaps who knows? A lot of these characters are getting on a bit in terms of their age. Let's bring them all together. Let's have the big finale. I think this film shows how difficult it could be to do that from a story point of view i think there's some fair call in that like if you look at the situation with claire being involved it's coincidental entirely that he happens to have a shark let's just say that attacks an orca that then happens to wash up on a beach and she gets assigned to looking into it and she takes that information to the others like everyone else i can understand them like obviously having these randomly infected people that chris and, and jill's team would have definitely investigated but to get clear there it's a bit of a leap of just luck really I checked the DNA we got from a bite wound on an orca carcass that washed up. It had a strain of T-virus in it. It's similar to the virus we found in the infected that have been turning up in the city. You're kidding. But again, the plot dictates this to put these people in contact and do the things. So I, I just kind of traded on face value that this just happens in movies sometimes and games and films and music and mm. plays and that things are coincidentally lined up the way that they need to be just to make the plot work. So I don't know. It's a bit of a tough one. Sure. How did you think the storyline was set up? 
the thing is, I don't necessarily disagree with anything you're saying, Nick, but it doesn't bother me because it's in service of, you know, building to these character moments. Yes. And, and sometimes you have to just assume that, like, coincidences and contrivances happen to, you know, enable these situations to occur. And so in that, it, it doesn't really bother me. I don't think it stands out any worse than other examples we've seen in the series of how characters have, have got together before. It didn't stand out enough to me for it to be a problem. Like, like when I have issues with like it, it's plotting, it's more to do with like the motivations of Dylan than it is how these characters get together as such. I think that's what I said. There was Renaissance, and I think I've seen a lot more forced situations that were much more obvious and stand out than that. Perhaps this felt like like I could believe this on some level that this coincidence could happen, or these people would end up together because someone was trying to make it happen more so than it just did. Yeah, I mean, one of my, one of my favourite characters in, in the series is how they approach the character of Sherry Birkin in Resident Evil 6, that she, she becomes, you know, a DSO agent just to be able to be in that storyline. If You know, no one had that down on their bingo card as, as to how Sherry was going to be brought back into the series, and yet they made it work, I think. But it's contrived. But I don't know if I agree. I mean, the whole thing about her was being under government control since she was a kid. I don't think it's too contrived that she became an agent. I love it, so I'm, I'm not criticizing it at all. As for my thoughts about the structure, or the setup, rather, yeah, I mean, I, I can see why it, it does seem a bit much that all five of them would be at the same place at the same time. I mean, it's true. Like, this is the opportunity where they all come together. It wasn't Resident Evil 6, for example, or... Yeah, that's, that's a good point. I think the aspect of it that annoys me is that the, the story that these characters are present in is ultimately throwaway. That's the angle that probably bothers me the most, is that in terms of like the overall impact on the, the series, like this will have none. It's just a very cute, enjoyable 90 minutes of these characters being together. But if you're looking for like how this will define events that are going to come in later games, like if Resident Evil 9 does bring back these characters, you can almost guarantee there'll be not even a passing mention to the events of Alcatraz. And that's a wider issue with the series, though, to be honest. I wouldn't write it off entirely. I mean, obviously, no game is going to go deeply into the events that transpired in Death Island, but I do think, for example, Re Revelations 2 did an okay job, like, remembering that degeneration was a thing. Right? It didn't go all the way, but it, it wasn't zero either. But yeah, Revelations 2 has the Damnation audio, I think, in the background, which is quite a nice, quite a nice little touch. And obviously, the, well, there's a connection to Claire's background and what she's doing exactly as well. So, Well, this is the thing. I Generally, I'm really pleased with what they do with Claire in a lot of the media. I think it's such a, a lovely progression of her character being part of an NGO. And I like the fact that she's very defensive over that. When they quizzed her on, uh, oh, you're terrorists, then the Harvardville incident. Uh, I like the, the passion that she kind of put forward to her. But yeah, it, I suppose in these things, Claire's the perhaps the weakest link in terms of getting them all together. I think that's quite a good way of doing it because there's no real reason why she would be actively involved in a lot of these things. And as these games go on and Capcom's insistence on using the big four, it becomes harder and harder to justify, one, why they aren't getting infected. Well, I suppose they are getting infected in this game, but why, why they aren't dying. And the, the number of biohazard incidents that they survive is becoming more and more. Chris is basically Superman at this point, having survived how many incidents I, don't, I, I couldn't even count. There is, and, and I think we, and we touched upon this in, in our last podcast, looking at Resident Evil Dead Aim, 
there is some benefit of having a completely new set of cast in a lot of these games. Sean, you described it as being quite a brave move by Capcom to have completely new characters that isn't Leon or Jill or Ada or whoever. And we all love these characters, but there will be a point where they're going to have to let them go. And it still upsets me that they killed off Pierce, to be brutally honest, because he was great in RE6. He was a real highlight. But that brings us quite nicely, actually, onto looking forward to these character interactions. Yeah, Alec, how did you feel that the narrative worked from that point of view? Were you satisfied? Did you think it was worth the wait? Mostly, yeah. I mean, I touched upon it earlier, but Leon and Jill, like, their chemistry is really well done. I, I do think it's a byproduct of the excellent voice acting for those two characters as well. Um, but they, like, just, just even beyond the voice acting, like, the way they fought those liquors together, and even though they're ostensibly, and, and, and the Japanese interviews with the creators kind of hint at this as well, is that they're not supposed to be familiar with each other. And even up until recently, Capcom admits that they had no headcanon for how Leon and Jill knew each other. So they dropped just enough in this movie to make fans wonder, but, like... You would think they'd fought together for a long time, given just how well they fought together, like against those liquors. Leon? Well, what do you know? Jill Valentine. How's it going? There's one scene where Jill gets, you know, grabbed by the liquor. Leon knows to turn around, grabs her. Um, they're able to dispatch the liquors on the other side of each other with minimal communication. And it seemed like those two really cared about each other, even though they're ostensibly not supposed to be very familiar with each other they're to begin with. It's, it's almost amazing how Chris and Jill's relationship kind of took a beating, <laughs> in my opinion. Mm -hmm. In canon, it's supposed to be repaired by the end of the movie. But if you didn't know any better, you would have thought Leon and Jill were better partners with each other than Jill and Chris were. You got a gun? Nope. Lost it. Here. Thanks. I think, yeah, Chris takes almost like a paternalistic approach to Jill in, in some ways. Obviously, he's very concerned about it. And that was nice. But I agree with you. There's the way Leon and Jill was written. It, le it leaves enough for people to start going, ooh, is that a thing? You know, what was what, simmering upon there? Because... The, the humour worked very well in that scenario. We know Leon likes a nice quip in, in even the most hostile situations. And I suppose with Remake 3's Jill as well, she's not opposed a couple of jokes and sarcasm here and there. So I, I think you're right. I think that worked quite well. A very different dynamic to some of our other leads together. We've been in this fight for so long. We're getting numb to it. So we have to be even more careful now. Because if we're not, that numbness will burn right down to our souls. Innocent people are being poisoned and used as weapons. Whoever's doing that has no soul. And if we want to stop them, we can't afford to think about being numb or souls or any of that shit. At least I can't. You say paternalistic, I say patronizing. Because holy shit. Do you? <laughs> like, I, I get where Chris is coming from because he went through all of RE5 just to save her, and a bunch more people died in the, in his next two outings after that, so I can see why he, he's a little defensive about it, but he, of all people, should know that Jill is ready to sacrifice her life for people. That was literally Resident Evil 5 Lost in Nightmares. To save Chris from Wesker, right? That was the whole crux of it. To see him preaching about it, like, ten years later is... A little disjointed, if anything. 
I was going to say, if 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 it became more clear that that was the reasoning why he's you know like you sacrificed yourself to save me once i don't want to see it again mm. you'd almost feel a little bit more justified in how he was acting right. you know what i mean like it doesn't answer exactly why but from his character perspective you would but that's not touched upon he just becomes like a bit of a pompous ass you know that is basically over controlling and manipulating her like she's not ready she's not in a good place blah 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 it's like no she's perfectly like capable and and as rebecca says she's the harshest to herself about the situation and you know, she doesn't need other people making her feel worse or being in her way. She already does it enough to herself. So, yeah, it's interesting. You're right about the Leon and, and Jill situation compared to the two of them. They, they, the dynamic feels unfinished. Yeah. By the end, it doesn't feel like the resolve is really there. I mean, when, when Leon and Jill start working together, he makes no assumptions about her capabilities other than that she's very capable. He gives her his gun, mm. right? And to me, that's a little symbolic of Leon's trust in her, right? Like, yeah. she can take care of herself. No need to dwell on why she lost her gun. Take it and let's go kick ass. And I imagine if they wrote a novel for this movie, they would probably delve into this a lot more than the movie shows. But there's a lot of inferring that's needed in order to see what the takeaway is, like with all the different plot points. Vendetta did this too, to be honest. But like, you got to read between the lines, I guess. And I think it pays off in some instances, but it doesn't in others. So Chris's odd portrayal in, in the beginning definitely stuck out to me. It's probably one of the more negative aspects of the movie. A lot of people did make point of this, and I, and I think it's a fair comment, that also it's really weird that he talks to Jill about peers as if it's like the first time he's ever talked to her about it. And I think from a narrative standpoint, obviously to the audience, you kind of want to to explain it but you feel like considering everything he's been through and everything she's been through they probably would have talked about this already at some stage <laughs> prior to the events of what's what's currently going on like it's it's also really weird when he brings that up it just feels a little bit awkward like it's great to get the acknowledgement of it and the connection to the events of that game in the movie but then you're like mm, this is a bit weirdly placed like he's missing the point he's talking about a situation and trying to put it to explain it from his perspective to her about a situation which i'm sure he's already mentioned to her before because why wouldn't you if, like considering how important it was to him and what's happened to her it just felt very awkward it is yeah like re6 and revelations to have like introduced bizarre little things that really make i guess the character interactions a little bit weird like when chris goes off for six months you know claire and jill don't check in on him at least you know to our knowledge right like in revelations 2's ending claire's like oh chris is in china okay you know like I just talked to him last week, so <laughs> go take care of him. Go have Pierce take care of him. I mean, you could say the same thing at the end of Infinite Darkness, this, the thing that Nick referenced before about, you know, how there's a rift between Leon and Claire regarding the information, and yet that's never really been followed up on in a timeline thing. It doesn't right. come from another perspective. And will it come back when we come back to it, or will it just be left there as that was the resolve of Infinite Darkness, and that's just how it ended in the timeline? I personally think there needs to be something between Infinite Darkness and Damnation. I, I would imagine maybe Infinite Darkness Season 2 is probably something they thought about, at least. Whether they make it or not, that's another question. But yeah, I do feel like there needs to be something that shows us what happens to Leon between 2006 and 2011. Because that's a five-year time gap, right? And yeah. potentially a lot of things could have happened. And 
it, it does seem like the right time for Claire and Leon to have another adventure could pick up from the ending of Infinite Darkness and lead into Damnation because by the time Damnation starts Leon is just like he doesn't give a fuck about anything anymore <laughs> and it also gives you a lot of more motivation to see why Claire went down the path that she has you know you've got a good chance to kind of use it to fill in the gaps of where she's trying to avoid the sort of conflict that her brother and others are involved in but still trying to help and what might have motivated her more than she already had for that reason so you've got to set up a both of those characters definitely where's portrayal yeah in this movie if you don't know that revelations 2 happens between infinite darkness and this movie i think it's very consistent you know, helped by the fact that it's the same voice actress and, and very similar looking character models on top of that. <laughs> yes, yeah. But Claire doesn't come off as, you know, like having gone through Revelations 2 in this movie, which I do think is a bit of a shame. I think Nick made the comment about the style she comes back with at the end of Revelations 2. And... There's also there's also a bit of a plot point and a bit of an unresolved plot point because in Revelations 2, she's infected with the T Phobos virus. And now in this film, seemingly infected with T. Blake virus, whatever you want to call it. That's not resolved. Sean, what about you? you, you obviously, you've been pushing for the, the character interactions. How did you find these these dynamics? Yeah, I mean, Alex touched upon uh, my favourite thing in the movie was actually seeing how Jill interacts with people. And I actually, although the, the point made about Chris being like he is in the first scene with Jill, it's, it's deliberate to create the conflict of character. Um, that you see but i do think that bounces off very very well with the fact that you have leon who immediately treats jill as an equal and as a result the mutual respect and partnership that they establish even in their short sequence feels deliberate to how chris treats her at the beginning i think that's an interesting study of character that the movie establishes i think it's great for jill fans i know that they're, they're, they're probably the most vocal of all the character fans in the series and i think the movie has rewarded them quite well and i i always like little hero moments and things like that and and i really do quite like the bit where all seems dour and all seems lost and and they know that jill's still out there and that you know i think that's a really nice little moment how can you be so calm <laughs> we got you She's still out there. There's hope. And like the Claire and Rebecca stuff's great. Their little high five moment at the end. It's very cute. That's the, the best way I can sort of describe it. There's not much in terms of like in-depth character studies. And I was a little bit disappointed they didn't explore more of the sort of fallout of RE5. But they did just enough. Agreed. Thank you for saying that. Yeah, that was probably the one big shortcoming for me was Jill mentions in passing her experience in RE5, but if I were Leon, I got the impression they met each other before 5, definitely not after. And, you know, for, for Jill to show up out of the blue, like, from Leon's perspective, she should have been dead, and she's not. I, like, I'd be curious to see what happened. But again, like, I feel like that's, like, novel territory, where, like, if you were to write a novel based on this movie, that's probably something. Those two would probably quip about both having been in the RPD and being Raccoon City survivors and Jill's return after RE5. Because Vendetta, for those who don't know, I'm pretty sure you all know, but maybe not every listener knows, but there was a novel that came out with it on the same day as the movie, in Japan only. And that novel, I, I'm pretty sure a fan translated it already, but I remember reading the novel actually at the stroke of midnight. And 
I read the novel before the movie came out. Did an all-nighter, and the novel does have a few differences. It's actually the reason why Maria hates Leon so much in in Death Island, even though like they didn't actually interact in Vendetta, was because the novel had them interacting with each other a little more closely. Like if you think back to Vendetta's novel, like the reason why Leon turns himself around so quickly because you know Chris kind of gives him a pep talk. Basically, he told Leon he knew how he felt because he had felt the same way a year before. And that, that helps kind of Leon realize that there is a meaning to all this and, and what they're fighting for. But you don't really see that in the Vendetta movie. And I feel like it's the same here where a lot of just things that, you know, in the absence of a Death Island novel, you, you have to read between the lines for a lot of these interactions. We're getting a manga, though, aren't we? So. I was going to say, because the manga has, has already expanded in the first issue, a couple of off-screen events and things like that. Oh, has it? Oh. Yeah, I believe so, yeah. Yeah, I've been so busy, I haven't been paying attention to that, but I should probably look into it again. Or maybe I might just see it all when it all comes out. Not very good with uh, piecemeal approaches to things. I'm the same. Certainly with the Infinite Darkness, while I'm waiting for the trade paperback for that. Did anyone think they should have just chucked Barry in at the end in the helicopter, just to, just to tick that box? Yes! <laughs> like, there was a rumor he was in it, too, and I was like, yeah, that sounds like something they would do. Like, throw him in at the end or something. Or I was expecting maybe he would be in Rebecca's team. The disposable goons that, you know, Rebecca brought to the island, but yeah. I don't exactly still understand how she survived and everyone else died, but I'll just let that slide. <laughs> Plot armor. It seemed to make a lot of sense yeah fun armor. i mean that i understand but like i still don't understand how everyone else died and she just kind of cowers and then everyone's gone and she's just left there and i'm like okay it was a comic fate to black wasn't it almost in a sense it's like next scene oh no i'm here now okay fine you just you just roll with it don't you again one of those moments all right i wanted to talk about the kind of bow slash virus and again i'm going to be a bit negative on this because this is something that I've always felt has been a problem with the series since original RE4 in that the viruses, the parasites, whatever it may be, suddenly becomes whatever the plot or the boss fight or whatever it needs to be. <laughs> I'm going to interrupt you straight off the bat. This is the same argument as over before about the narrative forces of the characters and getting the characters together. It is exactly that. It's... It is. I'm going to interrupt straight off the bat and just say I liked the idea that it was biotech. Attack virus that there was some element that wasn't just viral that it was manufactured and you know because i remember there was some confusion about the liquor thing why are they bring liquors well because they are still organic organisms but they have some sort of like tech implanted in the, the whatever you whatever you refer to them as mosquitoes or whatever the little things are so i think it's more interesting that it was an existing virus being tinkered with to alter its outcome rather than an entirely new virus or a combination thereof so i think in those perspectives it was a little bit more realistic if you want to put it in those terms at least from the viral perspective that was the bit i didn't necessarily mind uh, you know thinking back to the days of the a virus oh suddenly i've bitten you sir oh you're okay now now i'm cured okay with this one, we saw it a bit in Infinite Darkness as well. It was like, we're just going to have T-Virus, great. But we need the zombies to do a bit more. We need it a bit more exciting because we can't have slow lumbering zombies because that's not very exciting. Oh, we'll just make it a, a T-Virus variant. You know, oh, they jump now? They jump now. You know, that kind of thing. Which you saw in Infinite Darkness. And now in this one, it's like, oh, they can do full-blown acrobatics, climbing. And it just it's a throwaway, oh, it's an advanced strain of the T-Virus. Same virus, new delivery method. Yeah. And it, it doesn't transfer through bites. Yeah, and there's a bit of history of that. The C-virus doesn't transmit through bites either, but it's just all a bit... 
I don't know. It's, it's one of these weird things. In some ways, you just wish it was a completely new virus and I've done with it. But then I make it often. They can't make T-Virus interesting anymore because the zombies are slow and the game mechanics and CGI movies lend itself to a bit more fast action, a bit more pace yet. And even in with Remake 2, they become a bit bullet spongy to make the zombies viable. I feel like they chose the T-Virus because no character except Jill has been infected with it before. Mm. And maybe this is another me reading between the lines or making assumptions, but I feel like Dylan skipped Jill because the virus wouldn't have done anything to her, right? Yeah, I think that's what a lot of people have read into that as well, yeah. But then, of course, we know Claire's infected at the same time with the T-Phobos, so that there's no, no mention of that. Yeah, I thought they missed an opportunity to bring back the T-Abyss virus from Revelations 1 because of the aquatic theme. Mm. Maybe it wouldn't have made for interesting enemies, but I think thematically it would have been a better fit. You know, we went through like an era of Resident Evil where zombies were like not in vogue, right? Like we thought the Plaga were going to be the next big thing. But out of the five CG Resident Evil products, we've only had one without zombies in it. And arguably that was one of the better ones. <laughs> but yeah, it, it would have been nice to see like a different set of enemies just to mix things up a bit. Or if you're going to keep zombies, you keep traditional zombies for the purpose of traditional zombies and you introduce other enemy types based around the fact that they're completely different rather than changing up the zombies because of the virus. And again, there's no explanation. Dylan infects himself because reasons. That is probably my biggest issue with that, yeah. What are you doing? How Are you, are you just handing the reins over to Maria? Whatever. It just kind of self-defeats, yeah. I suppose it ties into his Russian roulette thing. But then he just gets eaten by the Neptune. And then, I don't, I don't know. I mean, why, why would that happen? Why wouldn't the shark just eat it and then I've done with it? But again, it makes me think whether this is, and this is where the manga comes in. I, I do wonder if this is actually a variant of the A virus rather than perhaps the variant of the T virus. Because in Vendetta, Glenn merges, doesn't he, with Diego? Yeah. And creates that kind of tyrant creature. There is a fusion element at least established within that. It can have been the A virus because Leon and Chris took that vaccine in the previous movie. Unless this is like a COVID-style thing where the vaccine doesn't necessarily stop future infections. But I was under the impression that once you're vaccinated against the T virus, you're you're good to go. But that doesn't mean that that's the same thing he injects himself with. That's the thing he doesn't mention. I don't think specifically what that is. No. Oh, you're you're talking about Dylan. Oh, I thought you were talking about the what the little micro thingies were <laughs> were carrying around. I got rid of these. Definitely that variant of the T virus. But yeah, no, Dylan's injection could be something completely different. That makes sense. If it was an A virus, then then at least there's a bit of precedent to show that you know fusion of this level can happen. You know, because the A virus is inherently stronger, and perhaps he's got a bit more resilience towards it and he can tentacle himself into the neptune and go right that's it you know whatever he needs to do otherwise i don't see why he just become a zombie and then just get eaten and that'd be well that's a boring way to go <laughs> who knows even if he was a perfected version of the t-virus and he became a almost like jason style asparagus tyrant type thing there's still no reason why he would fuse with a shark except for plot Except for plot, absolutely. <laughs> uh, but yeah, as I say, that kind of leads itself onto like the at the end part. And as I said, we've touched on it earlier. Just it became a bit cartoon capers, didn't it? With oh, I've got another guard, you've got another guard, and it all kind of builds up to this big kind of big crescendo. 
And then they'll dive over the big sweeping arm and, yep. I was genuinely waiting for Leon to turn around and say, my God, this really is a death island. (laughs) It was so corny. I was waiting for it. I'm going to have to watch it again. Now my expectations are at the appropriate level. I may enjoy it more. (laughs) As I said in my video review, I liked the fight between Leon and Maria. Yes. I thought it was a very well fight choreographed and like the action sequence is really cool and the fact that Leon actually gets his ass handed to him and it's kind of dumb luck that he wins was kind of funny in some respect. Like it was just circumstance that he he got knocked into something that just happened to fall down that created broke something off and then he reverse kicked her and she happened to pin herself into it and get killed was just kind of happenstance and I kind of liked that. But otherwise everything else that's going on in the fight outside is really quite ridiculous. Yeah. Leon kicked her ass. <laughs> So, Sean, what did you think of the viral changes in this game and the use of the funny version of the TV? Other than being absolutely perplexed why we now have acrobatic zombies that can climb walls and jump all over the place, it didn't bother me too much. It's another one of those things. It's like how the characters get together in the first place. The series is notorious for, as you said at the beginning, making a virus or a monster or a villain do what they need to do to make the plot and the story happen. Again, it didn't do anything that stood out enough for me to pull it down as a criticism. I just accepted it. You think that we could have had a little bit more B.O.W.s? Oh, absolutely. I'm still waiting for the grand return of the Hunter in some form of CGI movie or whatever. Mm. I think liquors have been done to death now. Very Orc-style liquors as well, with the, the tongues about 500 feet long. Yeah, and as a set piece, that was quite throwaway, to be honest. As Alex said earlier, the varying power levels of B.O.W.s and, and whatnot at times is absolutely comical. You know how like one liquor in a previous entity can can be a massive team effort to dispatch one, and yet now they get headshot. You know, dispatches them immediately. But again, this is going to be a movie where all of these things that people say about it are valid. It's just down to the eye of the beholder as to whether it derails the movie for you. Mm. It sounds like these are quite large hurdles to to cross, but for another person, it won't necessarily bother them as much. I guess that kind of like segues into the next point. Where do they go from here in a future movie <laughs> in terms of like the casting and, and the kind of story? Because, you know, I, I guess they could do like an Infinite Darkness season two that takes place much earlier so they can kind of avoid the elephant in the room in that regard. But it, it's kind of like the Avengers style where you had the first Avengers movie. Like you cannot release another kind of movie with a smaller cast at that point, right? And and they did grow the cast in the following movies, but if they want to make like another CG movie, like I think the five that were in this movie all have to be in it in some capacity in order to match the hype levels of Death Island. And whether that means bringing Barry and Ada and, you know, the, the Japanese uh, creators have talked about bringing Sheba into a future movie. Yeah, I mean, that's much needed, I think. There was talk of Billy, wasn't there, in Infinite Darkness, wasn't he? He was he was in an early early version. Yeah, like when making anything, ten thousand different ideas pop up. Mm. Whether it's a Resident Evil game or a Resident Evil movie, and they always run through a list of characters that they think would be appropriate. But yeah, it would be interesting to see Billy and Sheva and Barry, Bruce, Ark Thompson. Oh yeah, that's like Resident Evil Endgame levels of <laughs> yeah, yeah, battle of whatever it is, being something massive, bioterrorism, and they all come together in helicopters. Yeah, exactly, helicopters and boats and. <laughs> 
I think you're right. You have to have this thing where you have to have that same cast and then more, or you have to go to the other extreme, which is that you literally isolate one or two characters to a specific location, and it's the only way you can go. You can either go one big scale or do wind it down. There's no going back otherwise. You you have to you have to reset essentially down to the barest minimums or go big. And yeah, you'd end up yeah adding Ada and Sherry and you know whoever else you wanted to add in. Maybe this is the narrative Nick mentioned it earlier about you know having to eventually let these characters go. And I think maybe inevitably a CGI film is a better way to tell that story or to have a finale for a lot of these characters that perhaps the game couldn't have. Because the game has so much more of you putting you in the character's shoes. And we know from something like Six, where they tried to put you in the shoes of many characters with many ideas perhaps didn't quite work. Whereas like a narrative film with you know several major characters and several major supporting ones could be much more viable way of putting lots of people together that you wouldn't have seen before and it's a lot harder in a game i guess yeah a game could never credibly like do that unless it's directed by hideo kojima or something (laughs) (laughs) and even then you'll be like right here's a 45 minute cutscene that basically could have been a movie anyway so that's interesting that you could, you're almost saying that then perhaps Resident Evil 9 or Resident Evil 10 should be a CGI movie. I'm not saying the game has to be a, you know, a, a narratively, but I just think it's really hard at this point. Like, if everyone wants to have a finale for so many of these characters, it's not really an easy narrative thing to do in a game as much as it is in a film. No, Graham. A lot of people forget that when they talk about, oh, the, the next game's got to have this, got to have this, got to have it. And you've got to think of it from a game point of view. It's like how, even like the, the follow-up from Village, you're going, you know, with Chris going, right, we're going to BSAHQ to take down Blue Umbrella within the BSAA. How will that work from a kind of narrative point of view? You can't have Chris going in there with like full guns blazing if you want to create a survival horror-esque game. He's got to, you know, you've got to have someone go in with limited resources if you want to make it in that in that style as rob says there's a lot more rationale needed to justify why x happens whereas in a movie you can just kind of like chuck it all together and just go this is what's going on another game would have to be a self-contained story it'd have to be limited number of characters you know you could have two of these things people turn up or three of them perhaps you know but that's kind of it you can't you can't tell a massive epic story with multiple characters and this is the reason why every time a new game's announced you know and it doesn't have such and such character you get all these like oh it doesn't have jill in it Ugh, disappointing or chris is back again oh leon's in this one again why don't we get such and such like you're never going to be able to please everyone with any of these because they're not going to have everyone and the irony is even if you had something that had everyone in it people would be like oh but it's not doing enough service to xyz character you know <laughs> you're trying to spit it all thin oh there's 10 characters in this well, not 10 characters aren't going to get their due in that storyline because it's 10 characters. They'd be very cautious of the reception of RE6. In the game side, yeah. Like, if I could choose how to do it, I would just have a two-part CG movie planned from the beginning. One set of casts in the first one, and then the second one expands to something much larger. Like, the fan service ending that everyone wants. Because apparently fan service is no longer off the card for these CG films. Albert Wesker clone comes back, finally. <laughs> no. Palpatine style. <laughs> the dead speak. Somehow Wesker returned. <laughs> Pulling from Star Wars and MCU crap. <laughs> the, the other thing is we're not opposed to like time jumps and things around in this franchise. Things come out that go backwards in time and fill gaps. I mean, you know, Alex has alluded to the fact that you know, there's some gaps that, that could be easily filled with other narrative stories. And they could be games or they could be CG films. 
but it's harder the further forward you go as they get, as you've all alluded to as well, as they get older, characters get older, and it becomes harder to believe that they've survived more and more events, especially without any characters dying. I mean, that's the other thing. If you set a CG film that's late in the narrative, you can start doing some interesting things with that sort of concept. I know it sounds horrible, but you know, you could actually kill a character off because it would set a precedence for the events of the plot or whatever because it's set narratively so far. And I don't want to say this is a problem, but I think Capcom is risk-averse to allowing their characters to be killed off in, in any fashion, even in a CG film, because they don't know what they're going to do with them in the future. Yeah. I think we've talked about this before, but like killing Wesker off, for example, has meant that the franchise hasn't had a really stable long-term villain, and it's become a villain of the week concept. You know, each game has a different villain. Each CGI movie's had that same thing. You know, it's very hard to keep a consistent narrative without that going on. So, yeah, it's not an easy thing to risk. So, tough. What was the time difference between the the end of Village and the DLC? It's like 16 years or something stupid. 2021 to 2037, I think. 2037 is a massive gap. So, 16 years. But we know Chris is fine. Yeah, because Chris is referred to, so we can't kill Chris off at any time in that time period because he's referred to. Looks like us suckers win. Again. Yeah. And they'll keep coming back for more. Like always. Right, okay, so we've had a couple of call-ins, which I think is now an opportune moment to listen, so stand by. The first call-in comes in from uh, long-term RE veteran and fan, AJ. Hey guys, AJ here with a brief review of Death Island. Uh, this is likely going to come off a bit more negative than the other reviews you guys might have heard so far, but um, outside of some key moments and some fan service stuff, the movie came off pretty lackluster to me. Uh, for starters, they completely hand-waved anything related to Jill that happened post-RE5 in just two or three throwaway lines. We were expecting there to be some more, maybe a flashback or two, but none of that happened. Uh, secondly, Chris's role for being the original protagonist from the franchise. His role was a bit throwaway, and it felt like you could just replace him with anyone or he might not even be there, and it wouldn't change much in the movie. Uh, finally, one of the uh, early scenes in the movie has a couple of key characters talking to each other, and the script and the delivery is some original RE1 style um, stuff. It takes a huge upswing when Jill and Leon are together in the movie. Like You can feel that these are two experienced voice actors playing off of each other. And finally, um, Kevin Bacon's motivations are basically the same as the last couple of movies uh, antagonists so there's nothing original there either uh, that being said being a fan of the franchise this is the closest we've had to an avengers assemble kind of moment so there is a certain amount of joy in seeing all the all the main heroes together in the same frame one thing this movie does show me is that the next mainline uh, game needs to be with Jill and Leon because they play off of each other really well and uh, I think that that's where the franchise needs to go now. Anyway, to cut it short, 5 out of 10. Have a good day guys, bye. Kevin Bacon. <laughs> Absolutely, it does look like Kevin Bacon. <laughs> uh, 5 out of 10 there from AJ. I think this is definitely going to be a movie where your enjoyment of seeing these characters together trumps 
like legitimate movie criticism. I think if you if you if you crunch it down as a movie, I don't think it's unfair to say like the writing is quite subpar at times and the actual plotting and staging of the movie itself is lackluster, but it it's what you want to take out of these character interactions and if it works for you, I think you'll you'll have a lot of enjoyment from it as, as apparent. And you know, people are clearly getting a massive buzz out of seeing Leon and Jill together, and rightly so. It, it, like I said earlier on, it's preposterous. It's taken this long to happen. Yeah, it was done in a nice way. That felt good. The only thing I'll just also touch upon is that he, he he mentions, as I did earlier, how quickly throwaway Jill's trauma is. And I wanted to say earlier as well, and it's a good good chance to bring it up that on two occasions now with the character of Jill, they've teased in the early stages of the respective projects, the first one being the remake of three, and then this, that her trauma and her PTSD is going to be, like, explored in a quite a deep way. And like the remake before it, once the action kicks off, it's just completely forgotten about. And I do think it's a shame. Uh, you know, remake three w- looked like it was going to explore Jill as a character in a really interesting way. And then by the time Nemesis, you know, smashes through a wall, she's super cop again. Mm. I do think it's a bit of a shame that they seem to want to tease these great character deep dives, but never actually, you know, go for it in any sort of meaningful way. Okay, our second call in comes in from one of our patrons. That's Happy Smelly. So let's roll the tape. I'm really struggling to synthesize my thoughts on Death Island. Really struggling because it's probably the best CGI movie we've had since Degeneration. That's not a high bar, unfortunately. Definitely the best movie we've had. It's incredibly pretty. I liked all of the legacy characters. They were done okay. okay. They were done okay. It didn't offend me. Um, My main problem is with the villain. The villain is so... The logic he has, the it, it is so confusingly stupid that it, it, it took me out of the movie because I was just struggling to wrap my head around what this guy's deal was. I understand they were going for a sort of PTSD vibe. That could have worked out great, but it was it just it it was like the logic was just confusing because we see him with his mates, they're all zombies, and he doesn't want them to be shot and killed despite the fact they're clearly zombies. And he tries to get his 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 dude to stop shooting them, and then when he gets infected, he like they attack each other, and and he he chooses to shoot him. Or not, pardon me, he chooses to bash his skull in actually. And the guy's begging for his life, and he doesn't have to do this. He didn't want to shoot the guys that were already turned. He doesn't have to kill the guy. He's doing it for evac. It is a choice. And he's angry at our main characters because they were trying to make better choices, but not actually stopping the problem, um, kind of attacking the symptoms rather than the root. Uh, or something like I I didn't I really I was really struggling to follow it I really was he somehow takes over Alcatraz without anybody knowing and develops all these weapons God knows where he's getting his funding I could have missed absolutely could have missed what was going on there but I that was a bit of a how's he doing this and um, he also seems to want to get our characters onto the island he infects them but when they get cured by Rebecca he was like no 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 I was totally expecting that and now I'm gonna merge with a shark because fuck you I guess I didn't I didn't didn't get it man I was just sitting there the whole time asking myself increasingly incredulous questions because the logic of this movie is so distracting let me just read you uh, my final page of notes here 
um, because I had, I had a massive problem with the final act as well. Uh, good thing Alcatraz has all these weapon crates with various rocket launchers and belt-fed machine guns. Where did Leon get that Tommy gun? Oh, good, Jill's got a plasma rifle. Why is there a car with a machine gun mounted on it? That handgun ought to do it. Yes, I'm sure more virus will help. Jill has a bag. I wonder what's in that. Oh, good, she's doing the good old Ian Malcolm trick. Um, oh my god, it's a giant rocket launcher. This will be good for Jill's PTSD. <laughs> The Jill's uh Jill, sorry D Dylan's problem is with umbrella, not not four of the raccoon city survivors. I I, I it really made it a struggle to enjoy this movie. It, like it's maybe I'll have a better time on a second viewing, but at this stage it might be the most fucking stupid movie I've ever seen. <laughs> it's really pretty though. <laughs> There's a moment at the end there after she's listed all the various weapons and whatnot. There's a sigh, and you can actually physically feel her soul leaving her body. <laughs> it's incredible. I think Happy has had a very similar experience to me on this one. It yes, it's a very, very, very pretty CGI film. Yeah, she she, she probably paraphrased my full thoughts in three minutes better than I have in the entire hour and or so we've been doing this. But yeah, it's it's actually a welcome call in that because um. We haven't really deep dived Dylan all that much, not to certainly the level that Happy did just there. And yeah, it's preposterous when he he willingly mutates, isn't it? And I, I know like the Russian roulette aspect of his character shows that he's prepared to die at any moment. But even then, how, how do you enact a plan when you're a big shark blob? What then happens if he kills the main characters and he escapes Alcatraz? What what's he going to do? This is a worse case, even worse than Salazar, isn't it? Salazar is a really a good example. Like certainly in the, it's less so in the remake, more in the original. But like, say he killed Leon in that scene, does he just just fuse to a wall forever? <laughs> I won a podcast <laughs> <laughs> at the top of this massive tower. Yeah, it just goes back to the villain problem that the series has. That like Rob said earlier, they're just chasing Wesker forever, aren't they? Yeah. Thank you, Smelly, for that. Always a pleasure. That kind of brings us towards the end of our discussion. I think now we've got an opportunity to wrap up and conclude our, our, our final thoughts. So, Rob, what about you? Where, where do you see this? And a score as well. To me, I had an entertaining and fun experience watching it. It has not a perfect film. It definitely has its flaws, but I feel like it doesn't take itself that seriously, and I think we shouldn't either. I think compared to the other things, it's a it's a bit more of a balance, and I and I was happy to watch, and I'm be happy to rewatch it. So yeah, I, I'm I'm happy to give it a seven out of ten. Starstone. It doesn't knock Degeneration off the top for that, and I, whilst I'm well aware Degeneration is a is a flawed movie, and it it looks quite amateurly made now in terms of the animation and whatnot, I still I still feel that's a more coherent, complete movie experience that has a Resident Evil name on it. Death Island, as we've alluded to, is just pure fan service all the way through, and what you want to take from it will be directly linked with your overall impression and opinion. If you scrutinise it, as we said, as a movie, it really doesn't hold up. The plotting is preposterous. The villain is nonsensical. But Rob's point that you just finished there, you know, it, it doesn't take itself so seriously. So maybe we ought to just stop taking these big silly CGI movies seriously too and just go along with the ride. Do I want more substance? Absolutely. But it's clear that that was not the agenda for this picture. This picture was just to give people some character combinations and some silly action. And I think in that it delivers. I would probably agree with Rob's score. I'd give it a 7 out of 10. Overall impressions and score out of 10, please, Alex. I liked it. Go see it. 
seven and a half out of ten. For me, I think it is fan service. And first half of the movie, the fan service is nice. It's light touch. And we get a lot of character into moments, things we've been asking for for a long time. And I think that's a really good aspect. I just struggle with Act 3 and the lack of seeing the Neptune is, is personally quite upsetting. You know, you've got to remember, we didn't get one in Revelations despite it being you know, an aquatic virus. Hmm, what, what's the number one predator in the water? Oh, oh I don't know. How, how about a guppy? Oh, there we go. We'll, we'll, we'll make that into a fish. Picayozo. Anyway, I, I suppose I enjoyed it overall. As I just struggled with the last bit. I don't think it's as good as Degeneration. I don't think it's as good as damnation overall it's better than vendetta so it's kind of like third on my list but none of them are as good as 4d executor so you know what that what that did in 20 minutes <laughs> what that did in 20 minutes is probably still the best out of all of them i would give it a five or a six if i'm being generous well i know what i'm going to take away from this experience what's that prison tours suck <laughs> So do giant shark monsters. So did this harp. Yeah. But we sure did kick some ass, didn't we? We sure did. All of us. Right, well, there we go. That is our take on Resident Evil Death Island. Unfortunately, the Batman was unable to join us due to work commitments, but we will get his views in the next podcast. But for now, we end our discussion and we turn our attention to this podcast edition of Neptune's Biohazard Quiz. Do you know your G-Virus from your C-Virus? And your Jabberwock from your Bandersnatch? Or perhaps the number of bombs that appear on the Made in Heaven vest? We've talked about the games straying too far from the origins, this Resident Evil quiz. We're now getting Spice Girls as the correct answer, I mean, it's time to quit. This is Neptune Biohazard Quiz! Hello and welcome to Neptune's Biohazard Quiz. We have five biohazard theme questions, so clear your desktops. You can open up Notepad, but not Google. Here we go. So question number one. How many islands has Claire now been on during a biohazard outbreak? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe some bonus points for names. But there we go. Question number two. Canonically, in what year did we last see a Neptune? B-O-W. Is this a trick question? I feel like it's a trick question. No, 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 it's not. No, no. 
Question number three, because it was so successful last time. How do you unlock the rocket launcher in Resident Evil Zero? What are the requirements? Right, sticking with Zero, there are two ways of getting a game over in Leech Hunter mode. One is either character dying, but what's the other one? And question number five is a timeline question. 29th of July, 1998, so yesterday, 1998. Someone notes in their diary to save one bullet for themselves because their antibodies are not working. Say that again. So someone notes in their diary to save a bullet for themselves because the antibodies are not working. Who is that? So there are the five questions. So let's see how well everyone has done. BSAA, DSO, TerraSafe. Army, actually. Captain John Patrick Mason, sir. Of Her Majesty's as yes. Retired, of course. I was wondering where you scuttled off to. Oh, I have a unique knowledge of this prison facility. I was uh, formerly a guest here. Sucker. I did my duty protecting the sons of bitches in power. The ones who forced me to watch my best friend beg for his life and then ordered me to kill him anyway. I saw the highlights on television. You will know that kind of suffering. I'm going to use my virus to clean the slate. I don't quite see how you cherish the memory of the dead by killing another million. And uh, this is not combat. It's an act of lunacy, sir. Personally, I think you're a fucking idiot. With these biodrones, I decide who gets infected and who doesn't. I destroyed them. Are you fucking crazy? Have a nice day. So question number one was, how many islands has Claire been on during a biohazard outbreak? Canonically. Star Siren. Four. Four. Names? Rockfall. Alcatraz. The one from Revelations 2. Who can pronounce that island? Island. And the, the other one that I don't know the name of from Heavenly Island. Heavenly Island, yes. Alex, you agreeing? Are you saying four as well? Yep. Yep. Uh, Rombi, what about you? Mm, let me think about this. Yeah, I'm still going with four as well. Points all around. Yes, it is for Rockford. Or say, I think same is another island. Or the Forgotten Island, I think, is the general translated thing. So, yeah, same. Uh, Alcatraz and Tortuga. It's the Domingo from Heavenly Island. Very well worth checking out if you can. We, we always rate Heavenly Island. Once you get past the stupid bits at the beginning, it's actually a pretty good storyline. Right, question number two was canonically, in what year did we last see a Neptune, Alex? Um, I have no idea. I'm going to guess 2003. 2003. Rombi? 2015. 2015. Stars Tyrant? I said Umbrella's End 2003. If you're counting Death Island, I would put 2015. But if we're not, then I'm going to stick with 2003. This is why I asked if it was a trick question, because I'm like, isn't technically what we saw still one? Like, yeah, Nick doesn't like it, but... <laughs> I know the points go to Alex and Stars Tower in 2003. Umbrella's End, we see a specific yes. and dedicated Neptune BOW. No, I disagree, because I still class the one in Death Island as a Neptune, even if you don't. So it's 2015, and <laughs> boo. I thought someone might say Resident Evil 6 with the Brazak, but that's not a Neptune. Anyway, question number three is how do you unlock the rocket launcher in Zero Stars? 
I thought it was finished the game in under four and a half hours. Under four and a half hours? Ron B? That's S rank, but I can't remember. If you need the specific of how you get the S rank, I can't remember. It might be three and a half hours or four and a half hours. One of the two. I know it's an S rank. Alex? I thought it was get the S rank in normal mode or hard mode. Points to Rombi, grade S under three and a half hours. Well done. Nice. Very good. Well remembered. Question number four was also from Zero. There are two ways of getting a game over in Leech Hunter mode. Either character dying or... Alex? Uh, I have no idea, actually. Both characters... Or either character dying, right? That's the that's one of them. Um, maybe uh, what's what's the term? Maybe like you lock yourself out of winning by collecting too many items or something. No idea. I think everyone's gonna have a go at this. Uh, Stars, did you know? I honestly couldn't remember if it's if it's time controlled and you you can run out of time. I honestly can't. It's been so many years since I've done it. Rombi. I know this sounds stupid, but it isn't from completing all the the leech collection itself. No, 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 that no. It's a hundred to collect. No, because <laughs> that's technically a way to finish the game. All right. Well, then I don't have an answer. I've not tried it, but this is what happened: exiting through the mansion main door. That's a game over. Apparently so. Uh, oh, I mean, I knew you could do that. I didn't. Think of it as a game over, though. You can voluntarily beat the mode with less than a hundred. You don't get the full, you know, achievement of beating it. But you can you can exit. That's how you end the game. Yeah. That's why I thought finishing the game with all hundred, I think it is, is technically the other way to exit because <laughs> you can finish the game and then you don't have to go anywhere else. Well, no one gets the point, so it's as good as everybody getting the point, right? <laughs> <laughs> And finally, question number five was on the 29th of July, 1998, someone notes in their diary to save a bullet for themselves because the antibodies are not working. Who is this? Rob, did you know? I cannot remember any of this at all. It sounds familiar. No clue on who it is, though. I chose this one because I was, I was intrigued by it because it's, it's not picked up regularly about the antibodies in the series. It's just quite an interesting thing. Uh, Stars, did you know? Who is this person? I did not know. Did not know. Alex, did you know? Nope. No. Steve the researcher? Steve the researcher. Well, close, close. It, it's the dead factory manager. Oh. Oh, this is an RE3? Ah. No wonder the date sounded off. I was like, wait, that's after RE1. That was my trick. I was trying to... Cause it is very close to RE1. Yeah, so the, the file says, although the function of the system decreases, the number of bodies we have to dispose of doesn't. The infection level has increased and the antibodies we're using are no match for the new mutation of the virus. Because obviously it's the kind of T, the Birkin version of the T virus. Some of the workers have been infected with the disease. I've continued to work, but I always keep a gun with me. I must remember to save one bullet. So there we go. That is the five questions. Let's have a look at the scores. And well, would you Adam and Eve it? Everyone's a winner on this game with an impressive two out of five for everyone. You're all winners. Yay. Yay. Congratulations. <laughs> Yay. Uh, we all have off days, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually surprised I got the Neptune question right. That was like a real long shot. And I still disagree with you both. <laughs> standard standard join us next time when we'll have some more questions
uh, we are rapidly finishing our review, our analysis of Resident Evil Death Island. I hope everyone has enjoyed it. Our next podcast, unless there is a surprise drop of separate ways, which hasn't been officially announced yet in terms of release date or anything like that, our next podcast will be looking back at all the remakes. Possibly even Remake 1 is our kind of Remake Reflections podcast. I know Sean's very eager about this one. He's been doing some Twitter research with comparisons between characters and monsters and whatnot. So we're going to be having a retrospective look back on all the remakes, how they fit. And something we've discussed at the beginning of this podcast is, are the originals being replaced? How can they be preserved? And, you know, from my point of view, the lore in terms of what is canonical going forward, what isn't canonical, always a touchy subject. So you've got that to look forward to over the summer, so we'll be looking to record that in a month or so time, so look forward to that. But I'd like to thank Alex for joining us on this very special podcast. Always a pleasure, my friend. Welcome back anytime, as you know. Thank you for having me. But it's goodbye for me, Neptune. Goodbye for me, Star Siren. Goodbye for me, Rombie. Goodbye for me, Alex. Dino Crisis sucks.